Welcome back to Bible Time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, seeing it as a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Now that's a strange sentence there, strange saying. You've got to take it in its context. Let's look at it again. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Father, in Jesus' name, please help us. With, give us understanding. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. I pray that you'd be exalted, that your son would be lifted up, and that sinners would be drawn to him. And help us, Father God, to believe your word and obey your word and follow your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Righteous. Righteous is perfect goodness and holiness in action. As charity is the boots on love, as charity is the is true Christ-like love in action, true Christ-like love on the ground and acting. Charity is almost the verb, even though it can be, an, even though it's not necessarily, it, in a sense, it, it acts as a verb. It's the action of love. Charity is the love of God in action, acting out its the reality of the application of God's love to mankind. Uh, so in the same way, righteousness is the outpouring and the effect of true holiness. Righteousness has to do with actions. Righteousness has to do with um, the true judgment of whether or not your actions are good or bad. We'll look at that for just a second here, and then we're going to get into the meat of what this verse actually means. There was a movement in the 1970s to use this word for a slang approval of carnal things. They would say, righteous man. And they'd use that word kind of like they use awesome, like awesome dude. And they'd say, righteous man. And they would use this all through the 70s. Maybe a new car. Maybe it was a new hemp necklace, or maybe a new rock and roll album would come out, and they'd say, awesome, man, that's righteous, brother. You notice they'd use brother, too. That drives me crazy. From that era, they would use brother, brother, brother. Everybody's a brother. And they'd be, and then, the, and then they came out with this one, brother from another mother, which is a reference to fornicative acts, and those references have crept their way into the church houses, and it is not pleasing to God. We shouldn't talk like the world. We shouldn't use those kinds of phrases. God doesn't call everybody brothers who are lost. And they're not your brother if they are lost. They're your friend. Now, you, and you can be friends to them. They might be your enemy. You say, wait, we have no enemies. We have no enemies but the devil. That is not true. The, the Apostle Paul said, there are some of whom I tell you even now weeping. I'm kind of messing up the verse. He says, who are enemies of the cross of Christ. People who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And there are true enemies of the cross of Christ, people, two-legged mammal, homo sapien people, human beings who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And that is a reality. You say, oh, but we're not to, but they're not really our enemies. Then why did Jesus tell us to love our enemies? It says love our enemies because we have enemies and there are enemies to the gospel. There are enemies to the gospel of Christ. Now, whenever you're dealing with the gospel, Jesus Christ does not deal with his enemies with a sword today. And that's what this verse is dealing with here. We'll get to that in just a minute. But the, but the reason why I say, tell you this is that today, Jesus Christ, he deals with his enemies as friends and he blesses them even though they're his enemies, but that doesn't make them his brother. The Bible talks about Jesus as being the firstborn among many brethren. And there he was the firstborn in Bethlehem. And that firstborn in the Bible is a birthright. And it is not necessarily birth order. That is not saying that Jesus Christ was created 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. That is saying that Jesus Christ has the birthright of being the firstborn. And as the, as the firstborn, also the only begotten of the Father. He's the firstborn of God. But the firstborn of many brethren deals with the birthright. And then the brethren are brought in not by the physical begotten, not by the Holy Ghost hovering over your mother and conceiving you in the womb like he did for Christ. He's only ever done that for Christ. He'll only do that for Christ. But rather through adoption, we become brethren of Christ. And if you're not adopted, you're not a brother. 
But it's amazing that when you're adopted into the family of God, you are a brother, a full-fledged brother of Jesus Christ, though adopted. And he being the firstborn with the birthright is the one that has the authority and the decision-making power. He's the one that has access to the Father's goods. He's the one that we have access to the Father through. He's the firstborn among many brethren. And those are the brethren and those are the righteous. All these words have been twisted and contorted. We talk about Father God and then everybody says, well, everybody has, um, yeah, God's our Father. We're His children. We all children of God. Well, no, you're not. You're children of your father, the devil, and his works do you do. You're children of wrath, children of disobedience. That's what the Bible says. Until you're born again, until you're saved, you're children of your father, the devil not the Father God. And we twist all these phrases up. We twist all these words up till we don't even understand the Bible anymore. We read the Bible with the definitions that the world has superimposed on the words in the Bible. Instead of reading the Bible and defining the terms according to the Word of God. We're living in a day, it's it's crazy. We live in a day when people use a thesaurus instead of a dictionary. Your average person doesn't know what words mean. He just knows what the synonyms are. So he'll explain a word by saying, what is righteous? He'll say, it's holy. Well, no, it's not holy. Righteous is not holy. Righteous is different from holy. But instead of defining righteousness, what we do is we use holiness. And I use that a lot too. It can be helpful to look at synonyms, but that doesn't give you the definition. You have to go back to the Bible and look at how God uses the word to get the definition of the word. That, By the way, We do this with the Greek and the Hebrew. And in this day of use of synonyms, you say, boy, this is not interesting. This isn't helping me. Hang in there. It'll help you. Because in this day of use of synonyms, what people do is they go to the, they go over to the concordance and they say, okay, I want to find, uh, let's say love in the Greek. And they'll go to the word love in the Greek and they start finding all these different words for the love. And then they find all the root words for love. And they look at the little colon dash where it has all the different ways that this word was translated into English, and then they say, okay, so this word could mean this, it could mean this, it could mean this, it could mean this. Not true. That word has a specific definition. It was translated for a specific purpose. God was God was in charge of the translation of the Bible, by the way, and every word of God is pure. God had the Bible translated word for word exactly what it for what it means. So what happens whenever we go to the word of God and we go to the, we go to sermons and we go to men preaching and what, and we substitute synonyms in our mind for what is actually being said, we end up with completely different meanings. The Bible is a, listen to me, there's a big argument. Is the Bible a word-for-word translation or a meaning-for-meaning translation? The King James Authorized Bible, the preserved, infallible Word of God in English, is a meaning-for-meaning, word-for-word, thought-for-thought translation. It's all of the above. They not only covered the word-for-word, but they covered the words that they had to put in there to to correctly translate the direct, literal meaning of the word. Now, we're not talking talking about the mystical meaning. We're not talking about the metaphysical meaning. We're not talking about the theological meaning. They took the literal meaning of the word and directly translated it, which is why you have some words in italics in your Bible. If you look back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. This verse that we just read yesterday, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. The word which at the beginning of verse 5 is in italics. And some preachers would tell you that's because it's not in the originals and it was added for clarity. And that is, listen to me, uh, some good meaning people say it because they've bought into it and they're letting the world teach them and they don't understand the lie that is being spoken through their mouths, but that is a lie. That was not added for clarity. That was added for literal, direct, exact interpretation. Without the which, you lose the interpretation. The is is also italics, which is a manifest token. If you translated that verse and came up with a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, you would have left out two words that God wanted in the Bible. And those two words are directly, literally inferred in the Greek, Well, whereas the Greek uses less words in that place to say the same thing that we say in English. 
And I don't know if that helps you or not, but if you've ever studied language at all, it will make sense to you pretty quick. Languages don't translate word for word. There's holes whenever you try to translate. There's a broken, it's a broken syntax whenever you try to translate word for word without taking into account the grammatical structure of the language. So words are important. The order of the words are important. Those filler words in there in the italics are important. They're part of the, the perfect, preserved, infallible, inspired word of God. They're no less important than the words that are not in italics. Without them, you lose the meaning that is in the Greek and in the Hebrew manuscripts, the received texts that, had, that were studied whenever they translated the Bible into English there. So here today in our day and age, what we do is we look at this and we'll look at this word, seeing it as a righteous thing with God. And we'll start changing righteous and we'll say, well, righteous is holy, which is a state of being. Holiness is something that you exist as, whereas righteousness is something that you do. And so now we trade this thing out to a state of being and it makes God this distant God. It makes this tribulation a cause and effect that has no direct um, impetus from God. God. No direct outpouring of God's um, power and involvement. And in fact, it makes God slightly deistic without us even knowing it because whenever we, we, whenever we trade out holiness for righteousness, you trade out an active God who is actively engaged with our old, old timers, the founding fathers would call providence, a God who is actively engaged in the affairs of men, that's his righteousness, versus a God who sits on his throne in his holiness and waits to judgment that's his holiness. So God on his throne is holy, but God's hand at work in this world that we live in is righteous. Do you see the difference today? And if you just go with synonyms, you lose meaning and you lose understanding. And we're living in an ignorant culture today. We're living in the most ignorant time in the history of the United States of America. There has never been a more foolish, more ignorant, more backwards generation than what is raising up in America today. You say, how can that possibly be true? We have cell phones, our cars drive faster, our rocket ships fly higher, our, our airplanes go further. All we've done for the last hundred years is improve upon inventions that our forefathers made from scratch. They had no internal combustion engine. All we've done is figure out how to fine tune the thing that they built. And the reality is that whenever we left God and we left the Bible and we started teaching the false pagan religion of evolution in the schools, our nation went in a total slide of ignorance. And today, the average person that you meet on the street is patently ignorant of anything useful. They know a few facts that have been thrown at them. They know a few things that they learn from TV. They have some visual ideas of what things are because they spend their whole life watching a television, but they have no practical knowledge and no wisdom to apply any knowledge that they have. And they're walking around as fools with a bunch of, of facts and figures in their minds that are disconnected and completely broken apart from the truth. And that's how your average preacher and your average Bible preacher and teacher approaches the word of God as if it's a bunch of disconnected facts that don't affect each other. They don't really worry about the context. They just read this book. They read this commentator. They read this over here. And then they pile together all these little facts about the scriptures. And then they blurb them out at you over the airwaves or from their pulpit and tell you all these disconnected little facts that have no application and no direct ability to affect your life. And that's not God's way. God wants us to get in the word of God and let the word of God define the word of God. This movement in the 70s is a direct result of the influence of evolution in our schools in the 50s. After World War II, the American people were shaking in their boots. There was a new bomb on the street called the A-bomb, the atom bomb. The hydrogen bomb was on its way, about to be um, built. Pretty soon, Russia got its hands on the, uh, on the bombs as well. And other countries started building these bombs. We we're going into the Cold War era at that time. Um, Dwight D. Eisenhower was elected to office, and he saw all of these amazing inventions that the Nazis were working on. He saw a lot of their 
studies, and he was really concerned. It was actually only the providence of God that kept Germany from dominating the world in the 1940s because they were messing with some things that would have changed the world if they could have just gotten them a little bit faster. And it was only the providence of God that made Adolf Hitler use their first jet fighter plane as a bomber instead of a fighter plane. He said it was a, that it would be a fighter bomber. He designated it as that. Everybody clapped for him, and they went on to misuse the greatest air-to-air combat machine that was known to man at the time. If they would have used those things to knock down our bombers, it would have changed the whole war. But instead, they used them as, um, as fighter bombers. Anyway, we're totally on a, on a tangent. It was only God and God's providence that kept America from being completely pushed over in World War II and the rest of the Allied nations. By the way, the Soviet Union was nearly crushed. If they hadn't switched sides and gotten aid from the Allies, they would have been defeated by the German war machine. So here, Dwight Eisenhower, he's looking at this, and he decided we've got to do something. We've got to figure out why we were so backwards and behind in our science. What he didn't realize was that we were backwards and behinds because Adolf Hitler was devil-possessed. And most of his people that he really liked were devil-possessed too. And they had Satan himself giving them satanic, destructive information and inspiring with satanic power their scientists to try and destroy the world. But we had God on our side. And we didn't need the science, we needed God. And God defeated the German war machine. But as Americans, we did not want to admit that God had defeated the German war machine. We wanted to take all the credit for ourselves. So what did we do? We did just that. We put up our posters of Rosie the Riveter flexing her muscles and said, look at this, our woman power did this. And boy, has that been a curse to this land ever since as women have left the natural um, affections and everything else and have gone off into all kinds of perversion and have destroyed the home by leaving it and dumping their children off on the government to raise. We thought, oh, we've done this. Our boys did this. And we honored our veterans as they came back, loaded down with the pornography and the pinup girls from the French and from our own perverted um, artists. And as we came back, forgetting God and honoring man and taking all the credit and all the glory and basking in the limelight of the whole world as we became the world superpower in the 50s and rose up above all other nations and lifted ourselves up in pride, we needed a way to maintain our position as number one without God because we could not acknowledge God without humbling ourselves and that wasn't apparently an option. So here comes this whole study and it showed that the Germans taught evolution in their schools. Never mind the fact that the Germans were gassing people, killing people, murdering people by the millions. Never mind the fact that the Germans were using methamphetamines for their soldiers blitzkrieg and their soldiers wouldn't sleep for three days whenever they went on a blitz, um, whenever they went on a blitzkrieg because they were all meth heads. They had them all high on crystal meth. Never mind that the Germans had destroyed their own country, that the Germans would rape and pillage and rob. Never mind that all this sin and all this demonic power and all this bloodshed was directly related to the German war machine's use of evolution in the schools for the last 25, 30 years. Never mind all that. We're going to teach it in our schools. And Dwight Eisenhower um, signed a paper that would send a million dollars out to public schools at that time, a lot of money, if they would teach evolution in the classrooms. A million dollars of funding for those that would teach evolution in the, in the classrooms. And with that came a complete degradation of American society. We begin to throw the Bible out of the school. We begin to call evil good and good evil. And these words like righteous began to be twisted. Other Bibles, perverted Bibles, false Bibles that had been around for 50 years but had not been very used because of their obvious errors and contradictions and blasphemies that they contained were suddenly accepted in our schools and in our churches. And rock and roll music swept in. Immorality swept in. Uh, venereal diseases swept in. America became bathed in sin and wickedness and America 
America has redefined all the words. And guess what they did when they did that? They redefined Jesus Christ. They made a brand new Jesus Christ that fit the brand new culture. What was that guy? I forget which one it was. Was it Johnson with the Great Society? He came in with the Great Society. And here we're going to have the Great Society. We're going to end hunger. We're going to end poverty. We're not going to do it God's way. We're going to do it Karl Marx's way. We're going to consolidate everybody into the cities and, and socialize everything in this nation. Came up with all these supposedly great ideas as the reprobation of the minds of America progressed until today we have people that I'm telling you guys you go out there talk to people on the streets people today and I say this with all due respect are fools the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God and a lot of American people today will tell you there is no God those that won't say it have created a new God in their own imagination in their own mindsets we've got this hippie Jesus that sits in this forest while the butterflies fly around him and the sunlight trickles through the treetops down to where these little children are dancing and playing and he's sitting there giggling with his sodomite haircut and his little sandals on and then he goes out like a hippie loving everybody and condemning the condemning the good and raising up the bad we've got a hippie Jesus in America that's being preached all over this place that loves you just the way you are and requires no repentance I'll tell you how he loved you he loved you enough that he died for your sins the Jesus that loved you died for your sin the whips tore his flesh off his back they ripped his beard out of his face they beat a crown of thorns into his head and that's the price for your sins it's it's not some hippie Jesus sitting around singing kumbaya while a bunch of sodomites have an orgy. That is a false Jesus. That is a lying Jesus. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, we get a glimpse of the real Jesus. You say, how does any of that have to do with 2 Thessalonians 1 6? I'll show you how. Here he says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. I want you to see today a a righteous God recompensing tribulation to them that trouble the church of Jesus Christ. Righteous works. Righteousness is a quality of right and holy works. A righteous act is something that is intrinsically good in its action. Good inside and good out. Good in its motivation that began it. Good in its um, use and in its fulfillment and in its completion. A righteous act is good in its inception. It's good in its continuation and it's good in its completion. A righteous act is good in the heart of the one that does it. It's good in the hands of the one one that does it and it's good in the hands of the one that has it done to them a righteous act is good in God's eyes no matter who's involved it's good in the heart it's good in the hand and it's good in the recipient do you hear me today you see sometimes you can do a good deed for somebody and they don't think it's a good deed you can go and mow somebody's lawn and they might be a Buddhist and you killed 500 worms and they might just scream and shout and wail and wear, wear sackcloth and ashes for the next three weeks and that's not a righteous act to them so who determines what righteous is? God is holy. And because God is holy, God is the only one who can rightly judge what is a righteous act. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, we have a Jesus Christ. We have a God who considers it righteous to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. That is not the normal way that we think about Jesus Christ. The Bible says righteous are thou, O Lord, in all thy works. Go to Psalms 19. Let's run a few scriptures about righteousness and we'll take off here today. Psalms 19. I believe it's verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There is not much that, kick, that ticks people off about God more today than his judgments. God's judgments are when God says a man is a man, he's a man. When God says a woman is a woman, it's a woman. When God says it is an abomination for a man to be with a man like a woman or for a woman to be with a woman like she's with a man, God in his judgment is righteous. That means that God's righteous in his heart 
heart when he thought of it. That means that God, which he always did know it, because God always has been, not only was God righteous in his heart and his motivations, God was righteous when he said that that was true, and God is righteous to impose it on you, whether you like it or not. God is righteous and God's righteous judgments are righteous whether you agree or not. When God said thou shalt not kill and you go out and say, well, this is a non-life in the womb of a mother. It's a six month old baby, but it's a non-life. Here it has a beating heart. Here it has hands and arms and legs. Here it has eyes and a brain that can function. And you say that's a non-entity. It's not alive and you kill it. God says you're a murderer and God is righteous. He's righteous in the thought of his heart. He's righteous in the decree and he's righteous to impose upon you his law and judge you for what you did, whether you agree or not. Do you understand that today? God's judgments are righteous. God's judgments are right, whether you like it or not. When God says he's going to kill, he's righteous. When God says he's going to make alive, he's righteous. When God says he's going to wound, he's righteous. When God says he's going to heal, he's He's righteous. God's works are righteous. He says, I create peace. I make evil. He's righteous when he creates peace. He's righteous when he creates evil. You say, how can that be righteous? If you'd read your Bible and seek God with all your heart, he would give you understanding of that. But as long as you and your stiff neck pride stand up against God thinking that you are righteous and that God is not, you never will understand it. But I've got a little hint for you today. It doesn't matter whether you agree with God or not. He's still righteous. And his judgments are still coming. And when God judges, his judgment will be righteous. And he's not going to ask a panel to discuss whether or not he should pour out his wrath on this nation. When God decides that America has sinned too much, when the cup of iniquity overflows, God will judge and it will be righteous whether you like it or not. Whether all the talking heads on CNN agree with God or not. God is righteous and his judgments are righteous. Go to Psalms 11. Psalms 11. Let's look at a couple other aspects of God's righteousness. Um, here in Psalms 11, 7, for the righteous Lord, the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. That means everything that God does is righteous. And he loves righteousness, that which is done in true holiness, that which is done in true righteousness. By the way, that new man that is created within you, the Bible says, um, is created in true righteousness and true holiness. Holy Holiness is the state of being. That's your position before God. The righteousness is your everyday works. And the new man, if you have a new man, he is not only positionally righteous before God, but he will be righteous in his works before men. Because the new man is created in true righteousness and true holiness. And these people out here that claim positional holiness without any righteousness are liars. And that's what the Bible says. Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And that's why. Because holiness without righteousness is like a man without breath. Dead. Absolutely dead. Just like faith without works. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. Go to Psalms 1. There the first psalm of all the psalms talks about the righteous. Here in verse 5, sinners shall not stand in the way of the righteous. In the congregation of the righteous sinners, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There is a separation between the righteous and the sinners. And God makes that line clear. You say God loves you just the way you are. Then why does it say nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Sinners will not get to heaven. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The way of the ungodly shall perish. You see here, God is judging you, and God is going to judge your works. You can go read that in Revelation. And if your works are ungodly, you will be cast in the lake of fire. You say, now you're preaching work salvation. No, I'm not. Salvation is by grace through faith. But that grace through faith teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, holy, justly in this present life. 
God is able to keep you from falling. When we sin, the Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Anyone that lives in unrepentant sin and continual unrepentant sin has no right to claim the holiness of God positionally and should be treated, as the Bible says, as a liar. You do not give them that benefit of the doubt because they don't get it. You say, wait a second, we're innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, in American jurisprudence, but not in God's jurisprudence. God has already called us unholy. God has already called us unrighteous. God says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You don't get to just walk in willy-nilly and say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian man. Well, you live a life like hell in service of Satan. God calls you a liar. And the church of Jesus Christ is commanded by God to withdraw itself from those that walk disorderly, not after the manner that you have received of us. You don't have the right to be considered or treated a Christian unless you are living righteous. I know some of you don't like that. Some of you think I'm far out there, but I'm preaching the Bible today. Job chapter 27 and verse 6. Here Job was in the middle of a battle and he says, (coughs) my righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. So there's the righteousness of man and Job was a very righteous man. He said, my righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. His three friends were trying to get him to admit to sin. He says, I'm not going to do it. There in Job chapter 32, Elihu comes on the scene and it says that these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now this is called self-righteousness and self-righteousness is an offense to God even though Job was a very righteous man because Job justified himself and not God Elihu's wrath was kindled. Look at there in verse 2 for it says against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God instead of looking to God's righteousness. So Elihu put Job in his place. Here in chapter 33 and verse 8, he says, Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy word, saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. And um, he goes on there and accuses Job here of self-righteousness. It says in verse 26, He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him, and he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profiteth me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit and his life shall see the light. Did you hear what Elihu's preaching to him? He's preaching to him a contrite sinner going to God in repentance and getting grace. And this is before Moses. This is before Moses is born. This is... If the historian's educated guesses are right, Job was before Abraham. And here he is preaching salvation by grace. Elihu is preaching salvation by grace through faith to Job. He's telling him here, if you come to God repentant and tell him you have sinned, tell him you have perverted his ways, tell him that you were wrong, it doesn't profit you, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit and his life shall see the light. So here's salvation by grace before Abraham even showed up. We know from the word of God that God um, later rebuked Job and affirmed what Elihu said was true and ratified it and verified it. Job answered God in verse um, 3 of chapter 40 along the lines of what Elihu had instructed him in. And he said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Back here at the start of Job, God called Job in verse 1 that Job was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And yet over here in chapter 40, he says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. And he repented before a thrice holy God because he recognized that his righteousness was not his own. Whatever he had was a gift of God to begin with, and that intrinsically within him he was not righteous. Which, by the way, was testified to every time he made sacrifices. He would not have had to make sacrifices if he was truly, uh, truly righteous in the sight of God. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham simply trusted God, took him at his word, and God counted that faith as righteousness. And Abraham was saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. 
Now, the outworking and effect of that salvation was different than it is today. He didn't go into all the world and preach the gospel. He sat around in Canaan land and made sacrifices. The outworking was different, but the mechanism of salvation was the same, saved by grace through faith because he believed God. And then his faith evidenced itself in the outworking that was a little different than it is in our day. (coughs) That'll help you if you'll grab a hold of it. Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, they search out iniquities. I think I got the wrong chapter here. I did. Who knows where it says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Somehow I messed that up. Well, here in Isaiah, you can look it up and we'll find it another time. It tells us here in Isaiah that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, that we've all gone astray. We're all like an unclean thing. I'm sorry I messed up the reference on that. I encourage you to find it and um, find it for yourself. It's there. Look it up and fact check me. The Bible says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Your good works, because of your unholy nature, are made unholy and unrighteous because of your unholy nature. You see, we think that righteousness is something that can be produced by anybody. We think, and we don't say it, but we think that Satan himself can be righteous. We think that as long as what Satan does is good, it must be good whether or not Satan does it. And what we, so what we've changed is we've made this all relative. We've made righteousness based upon actions instead of your original state of being from which the actions are produced. And here God is righteous because God is holy. So why aren't we righteous? (coughs) Because we're unholy. If we were holy, we'd be righteous, but we're not holy, so we're not righteous. And all our works that we do are unrighteous. If you have a man that comes and he is and he's murdering people as he goes through the town and he walks up to your house and he says, hey, I've murdered a hundred people. I'll probably murder you tomorrow. But today I just want to be a nice guy. I cooked you dinner and I want to mow your lawn while you eat it. Have a nice evening. Are you going to be thrilled with the man? He's a wicked man. He's a murderer. He's a danger. He's a threat. And so his good works are deemed offensive by you because of his unholiness. And this makes sense in that kind of a setting. But for some reason, we think that whenever we come to God with our unrighteousness, with our unholiness, with our wicked hearts, with our unbelief, with our doubt, with our lust, with our confusion, with our anger, with our pride, with our malice, with our evil speaking, and we come to God and we offer him some kind of good work that God is supposed to clap his hands and say goody goody whenever we bring him a good work and God says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags our wickedness pollutes our goodness so that our good works are deemed unrighteous in the sight of God because of the source from which they came it's good to offer a man a drink. Imagine you're in the desert and you're sitting there and you're about to die of thirst and your throat's all swollen and sticking shut because it's so dry and your tongue is sticking to your mouth and you can't even, you can't even think because you're so thirsty and a man walks up and hands you a cup of antifreeze. You're thirsty. He gave you a drink. Isn't giving somebody a drink a good thing? You say, well, that's different. He's giving you antifreeze. What if he didn't know it was antifreeze? What if he dipped it out of the puddle over there by the oasis and didn't know it was antifreeze? You're all situational. You're all relative. Everything with you is relative. The problem is not whether or not the man knows it. The problem is whether or not the man is right. If he's not right, he's not right. And it doesn't matter what his motives are if he's not right. And if you are a sinner before God, if you are ungodly, if your heart is wrong with God, then you are wrong and everything that you are doing is unrighteous in the sight of God. Does that make sense today? If you are unholy, everything you do is unrighteous. You say that can't possibly be true. The Bible says the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to God. The prayer of a wicked man, the way of a wicked man is an abomination to God. The thoughts 
Everything that a man does that's, a, that's not saved, born again by the power of God, is an abomination to God. God is righteous because God is holy. But God's righteousness is different from His holiness in that God's righteousness is holiness in action. It is holiness in thought and word and deed, and it comes out in every moment of everything that God does that God is righteous. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. Isaiah 59 Isaiah 59, let's contrast this back to God. Man is totally unrighteous because man is totally unholy. God is totally righteous because he is totally holy. Isaiah 59 and verse 15. I may have messed up that one too. I don't know how I messed up all my references in Isaiah, but I did. It says his righteousness, it sustained him, and it says he put on for a breast, um, righteousness for a breastplate. So Jesus Christ, you can look that up again. Look up righteousness and bless, breastplate. Look up breastplate and find it there in the Bible. Fact check me. I'm sorry I messed up my notes so badly today. But in any case, what it's saying here is that his righteousness sustained him. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ is what would carry him through. And that his goodness would sustain him in the face of all the evil that he confronted. Righteous works are the very best, pure, um, and holy works there. And that's the only thing that is righteous, the very best and the very most pure. So here in our text, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation. This is what I wanted to get to. This is why we did all of that back study and all of that back discussion, if you will, or preaching to get to this point. In our text here, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Get this. Think about it. Think about this today. For God to recompense tribulation is righteous. So you would think a righteous act would be giving a thirsty man a drink of water, helping an old lady cross the road without getting hit, carrying in groceries for an old widow. You would think a righteous act would be going and telling somebody about Jesus and asking them to repent, weeping on their doorstep, begging, begging them to come to Christ. You would think those things are righteous acts. Here God is saying it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Think about that for a second. God in his perfect holiness, God in his perfect goodness, God in his love is perfectly righteous to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Let's look at that tribulation here. God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love, go to Revelation, God's mercy and love and long-suffering and gentleness. His mercy demands that God recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Revelation chapter 5. Let's look at this tribulation some. This tribulation that he's talking about, which you will see in 2 Thessalonians, um, he talks about the tribulation there in verse 6, and then he talks about the rest of the church not going through the tribulation. More on that tomorrow, Lord willing. <clears throat> the flaming fire and vengeance of God on them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then finally their everlasting destruction. And then he speaks again of the man of sin being revealed in chapter 2 and getting down there to chapter 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, the abomination of desolation that takes place during the great tribulation. <coughs> the wicked... The wicked being revealed with a capital W being the beast. All of this is coming. Hear this tribulation. This is what I want you to get. We read about this tribulation and the wrath of God. And in our human understanding and our human minds, we divorce God's goodness and love from it. And we think, well, God's got two sides, like a yin and a yang. He's got his nice side and his mean side. And this is God's mean side. And honey, that ain't right. That is not true. God is love and he's just. God is holy and he's merciful. God is angry and he's full of long suffering. God is all of it at the same time and it's no yin and yang thing. He's all of it simultaneously and on purpose and he doesn't have an off switch and an on switch. God is God and he's all the way perfect and all the way God. And what I want you to get today as we read some of these verses in the book of Revelation is that this is the love of God that you're reading about. This is the love of God. This is the love of God for his church. 
You see, he loved all men so much that he died for them, but he loves his church so much he's going to wipe up the ground with his enemies who have hurt his church, which is the whole point of the tribulation, by the way. Those, those that would try and claim the tribulation is to punish the church have totally misunderstood God. We'll see more of that later. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. You say, who's that lamb? John the Baptist already told you. Behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. It's Jesus Christ undeniably according to scripture. Verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign in the earth. So here's Jesus Christ taking the book and preparing to open the seals of the book. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder one of the four beasts saying come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So here Jesus Christ the lamb of God the sweet Jesus that we sing Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, I know. That sweet Jesus is sending forth a conqueror to, to conquer the world. In other words, war. He's sending war on the earth. Verse 3, when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. This is Jesus Christ doing this. Jesus Christ just unleashed some kind of spiritual force, some kind of spiritual being that can cause the people of the earth to kill one another and gives him a great sword. Look at it there in verse 4, verse 5. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld a low and black, a low, a black horse, and he that sat on him, on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. That means you get about a cup of wheat for a whole day's labor. A measure of wheat for a penny. A penny, they didn't have inflation at that point. It was still on the gold standard. And a penny was worth a whole day's labor for a normal working class man. So a working class man can work from dawn to dusk, 12 hour day, and he gets a cup, a cup measurement of wheat. What would that weigh for those those that would be listening that would go by weight? It wouldn't be much. It's about as much as you can hold in both your hands cupped together. For a full day's wages, we're talking about starvation happening here. We're talking about babies dying because mama doesn't have milk. We're talking about the whole world going into an extreme famine and poverty and starvation. He says here, three measures of barley for a penny. Three scoops out of a bag of barley for a full day's wages. And he doesn't tell you how much the tax collector is going to take out of your penny either. This is talking about total economic distress. And guess who launched it on the earth in this passage? Jesus Christ. You see the the world out there that, that... hates God, hate Jesus too, because they know he's God and they know what he's going to do. It's only the fake Christians. It's only the fake Christians that, that don't see this thing. <coughs> and when he'd opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed him and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. God is unleashing death and hell. Jesus Christ here, the lamb, listen to me, the lamb. The lamb of God that died to take away the sins of the world. Gentle Jesus who said, let the little children come unto me and forbid them not for of such are the kingdom of heaven. This Jesus just appointed 25% of the world population to die by hunger, by the sword, by famine and pestilence and the beast. 
It actually did not say pestilence there. By hunger with death and with the beasts of the earth with the sword, he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. You say, how can a loving God do this? How, if God's love, how can he send anybody to hell? If God's love, how can he do these things? Look at it. Look at the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? You see that preacher that was so meek and mild like Jesus when you put him to death. When the Muslim men came and told, asked him to deny Christ, and they cut his head off, and they laughed and they mocked, that man today is under the altar in heaven, crying out to Jesus, waiting for the day that Christ will avenge his blood on his murderers, and Christ will. Christ will. You see, all these people like to mock gentle Jesus. He's going to come back with his garments dipped in blood. Some of you don't like this, but it's Bible. Verse 11, and white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. You see, God's only going to let this world hurt his church so long. And then he's coming in to judge. Verse 12, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and the every bond man and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Listen to this and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand. Do you understand? Understand what this is saying today? That gentle Jesus, loving Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, the Lamb of God is going to pour out his wrath on this world. And when he does it, he will be just, get this, I can't, I cannot emphasize this enough. He will be just as righteous and holy and loving and pure and good and long-suffering and full of mercy as he ever was. And the loving God that we say we follow is going to bathe this world in the blood of his enemies. That's the real Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible, and that's why the world hates him. Cannot emphasize this enough. Go to chapter 8 and verse 1. He says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And it says here, The prayers of the saints ascended up to God. And it says there, um, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. Carrie, you better go hug some trees, because Christ is going to burn them up. The second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. All these people trying to save the oceans. Christ is going to turn a third of it into blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. All you whale lovers out there, Christ is going to kill your whales. Oh, you don't believe in that, Jesus. You don't believe in Jesus then. Jesus is angry with the wicked every day. It says here, a third part of the life that was in the sea died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed, and the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Jesus Christ, all you watershed people. Jesus Christ, all you reservoir people, Jesus Christ, all you water conservation people is going to poison the waters of the world in his wrath against man. And there's nothing you can do about it. And by the way, he's love.
By the way, he's merciful. By the way, he's long-suffering. You say, that doesn't sound like mercy. He's merciful, and that's why you're not dead today. That's why he's not done it yet, because he's holding back his wrath for a time. But it's going to come because it's as much part of him as his love is. And you can't stop it when it comes. There's nothing you can do to stop the wrath of the Lamb. It is coming, and it is righteous. And when Jesus does it, it will be right and it will be holy, and it will be good, and Jesus will not be sitting in heaven weeping and crying with tears running down his face and wringing his hands saying, oh, those poor people, he will do it in wrath. And this is Bible. You have time to repent today. Jesus wept for you already. Jesus shed his blood for you already. The door of grace is still open. There's still time to repent and get right with God. But if you don't, you'll face his wrath. And his wrath is just as good and pure and sure as his love and mercy are. Just as sure as I can promise you. You say, preacher, you don't sound very loving. Just as sure as I can promise you eternal life. Look up here today. Just as sure as I can promise you today, eternal life today, right now, if you will repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved today. How can I promise you that opinion? No, the word of God, the truth and the veracity of the righteous word of God. That's how I can promise you that just as sure as I can promise you eternal life today, I can promise you that what I'm telling you from this book today, the righteous indignation and wrath of almighty God will be poured out on this land. Just as sure, just as sure as the whole world watched Billy Graham on the TV saying, Jesus loves you and quoting John three sixteen. just as sure as John three sixteen is true. Revelation chapter eight is true. And God's judgment and God's wrath is as much a part as who God of who he is as his love and his mercy. And it ain't no yin and yang thing. It's God. And you say, well, how can a loving God do that kind of thing? Look at what he did to his son. Look at what he did to Christ. Look at what Jesus submitted to for your salvation. He's already showed us the very gospel that you false prophets preach to people. Come as you are, just like you are. You don't need to repent. Just pray this little prayer. Repeat after me. You don't have to forsake the foolish and live. You don't have to look unto Christ and live. You just say this little prayer and believe in the Jesus in your mind while you repeat these where, these words. And, and God's just going to magically, miraculously save you. And you're going to go to heaven without even knowing that you're saved. And all this junk that's being preached all over this nation is a lie. And the real Jesus that loves you, listen to me, died for you and shed his blood on the cross of Calvary and he was wounded for your transgressions. Don't you think for a minute that you have any hope if you go any other way? Some people out there say, oh, you know, God is an understanding God. He is an understanding God. That's why he sent Christ. You say, he's an understanding God. And so surely a Muslim man that believes in Allah, if he's, as long as he's sincere in his heart, God will accept him. And the Bible Bible says there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And Jesus Christ himself will destroy the armies of the Muslims. He will destroy the armies of the Catholics. He will destroy the armies of the Buddhists. He will destroy the armies of the Eastern Orthodox. He will destroy the armies of the atheists. He will destroy the armies of the pagans. Jesus Christ is a God of war. He loves you. He's a God of love, but he's also a God that is jealous. He's also a God that is angry. He's also a God that is just. He's also a God that is pure. And Jesus Christ will judge because Jesus Christ is righteous. Revelation chapter 16, thou art righteous. Verse 5, and I heard the angel of the waters say, thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be because thou hast judged us. What is he saying God is righteous about? 
Look at the context. Verse chapter 16, verse 1, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Did you hear that today? God's just gone from a third of the sea to the whole sea. He pours out a vial on the earth and there's a sore on these men all over the earth. That's like boils. He pours out a vial on the sea and it becomes as the blood of a dead man. The sea becomes like the black congealed jelly of the blood of a dead man. And it says here that every living soul died in the sea. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. You see that huge dam built up there in Ethiopia has really helped Ethiopia. But what about whenever that whole lake above, what is that, the Atswan Dam? I can't remember the name of it. Up on the Nile River where it starts up there in Ethiopia, and that whole lake will be blood. It says, um, the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of water, waters, and they became blood. God's going to turn the Mississippi River into blood. The whole thing. Remember driving over the bridge the other day, some of you? That whole thing will be blood. The whole thing, as far as you can see. The Great Lakes up in Michigan, up by New York, blood, as far as you can see. The Gulf Shores down here, all these beach resorts, they'll be out there and they'll be looking and it'll be blood as far as they can see. And the stench of blood will waft across the nation. That much blood will stink the whole world. The ocean will be blood. The rivers will be blood. Verse 5 here says, And I heard the angel of the waters, get this, and get it in your soul. The angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord who art and wast and shalt be because thou hast judged thus for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink for they are worthy. Did you hear what he just said? They have shed the blood of saints and prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink for their worthy. Why is God doing this? Why is the lamb so mad? Why is Jesus so mad? Because the people that he bought with his blood, the people that repented and believed the gospel have been hated and despised and overlooked and attacked and persecuted and slain and killed by this world. And Jesus is coming back for revenge. You say, how can he be a loving God? The Bible says, love your enemies, do good to them to persecute you. Yeah, it also says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. God tells us to turn the other cheek because he's going to smite his enemies on the cheekbone. Read the Psalms. That's what it says he's going to do. I turn the cheek as a follower of Christ, but God Almighty is going to put his fist in your face, you sinful world out there, if you don't repent do you hear me today that's the reality that we're facing you see whenever the preacher lets you smite him whenever the preacher lets you spit on him whenever you cut the head off of that preacher you thought that was the end of it but God tallied it up God is keeping score and God is going to recompense tribulation to them that trouble his church. Oh, you think it was funny you went down there and egged the church. You think it was funny you went down there and disrupted church services. You scoffed the church. You mocked the church. You mocked the men of God. You won't listen. You, you just scorn and hate and deride the man of God. If you could kill him, you would. In some of the countries out there, you do. God is keeping score. And it will be righteous whenever God calls up your marker and recompenses tribulation to them that have troubled his church. He says, they are worthy because why? Because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. He says, all of this is going to happen. Listen to me. This is going to go out throughout the world. Listen to me from and maybe out in China, maybe out in Singapore, maybe out in Finland, maybe in Australia. Listen to me today. The nations of the world, you kill God's people. God's going to kill you. God is going to kill you. You kill God's people, you make God mad. Simple. Really simple. You kill God's people, you make God mad. 
if he waits, if he tarries till the tribulation, you may think you're getting away with it, but you won't. You can build your dams. You can build your eco ways. You can build your habitats. You can do all your conservation stuff that you want to do, but you mess with Christ's church and you're messing with God. He said of Israel, he that touches me, touches you, touches the apple of mine eye. Look at what God did to Babylon for touching Israel. God is going to judge this world, and when he does, it will be righteous. We've got so much more that we can look at. In Matthew 10, we're going to skip ahead. We could have gone on to Revelation 17, judgment of the great whore, the harlot church, which fakes, that has the fake Jesus and pretends to be God's, God's going to leave them behind. He's, they're going through the tribulation. The harlot church goes through the tribulation. The true church doesn't. Um, Christ returns in chapter 19, destroys his enemy with a sword. In Revelation 20, Christ judges and he throws all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life in the lake of fire and he's not going to cry about it. He's not going to shed a tear about it. Listen, your lost loved ones, if you're saved today and you have lost loved ones, today is your day to weep. If you're going to weep for them, today is your day to weep because whenever the judgment comes, there'll be no tears shed for the lost. It'll be the righteous judgment of God and the saints will say, thou art worthy, O Lord, righteous art thou in all thy ways. Well, their loved ones, well, their brother, well, their mother, well, their son, well, their daughter are cast into the lake of fire for denying Christ. They will be standing there giving praise and adoration to the Lamb of God as he executes his wrath and vengeance upon them. There will be no tears shed in heaven if the circle is broken. Oh, we sing the song, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Shed those tears on earth because you won't shed them in heaven. He'll wipe away every tear. You say, how can, you, how can heaven be heaven without my children? Well, because in heaven you will be like Jesus and you'll have his mind and you'll have his understanding and you'll see things the way he sees things and not the way that you see things. That's how. So you better do everything in your power today to get your children to Christ. Well, you still have time to do it. Matthew 10 40 as we close, skipped a lot of texts, uh, a lot of texts in Matthew 10 14 there. We could look at that. Um, he, um, you look it up later, read it. Matthew 10 14 through um, verse 18 deals with how the world will deal with Christians. Matthew 10, 40. We're going to close with these verses. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. God takes it personally when a man goes up and knocks on a door. And somebody says, oh, I don't want to hear about your God and slams the door. God takes it personally. God tells us, turn the other cheek. Why? So we can go on to the next one and not worry about it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Not my job. I'm not the one pouring out wrath and I won't be. If I was, you wouldn't have to be afraid because I can only do so much. I can't do hardly anything. But God can and God will. Today, I turn the other cheek. But when people slam the door, they scoff, they mock, they scorn, they spit, they beat, they kill. God's keeping score. And if you do that to God's people, God takes it personally that you're doing that to him. He says in verse 41, He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would be exalted that people would be warned. Lord, we've told the gospel today that Jesus died, was buried, rose again. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved if they're truly believing in their heart. If they've, and if they have, then they're repenting of their sins. And Lord, we've, um, we've shared that today and we, we hope, Lord, that men will be saved, Lord, through this message going out. But Lord, we just ask you that people would hear this and be warned of the wrath of God that's coming, that it is righteous, that you are righteous to do what you will do. You will not sacrifice any of your purity or your holiness or your love or your mercy or any other of your attributes whenever you pour out your wrath upon this world. But rather, it is the perfect fulfillment of exactly who you are that you will rescue your loved ones and damn the ones that are your enemies. And we ask you, Lord God, to do it quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Judge this wicked world. And Father, we pray that you would, until you come, give a space of mercy and repentance and send your Holy Spirit to convince men of their sins of your righteousness and of the judgment to come. In Jesus' name, amen.